Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. It's award season, and for the next five weeks, Below the Line is all about the Oscars. Each episode, I'll host a panel of film industry professionals to discuss the nominees in their category of expertise. The release schedule might be a little sporadic this year, but the plan is to publish 10 episodes between now and the 95th Academy Awards ceremony on March 12th. It is the fourth year we've done this, and I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I do. Our first category is visual effects, and I'm happy to welcome back returning guests. Ken Seki, your visual effects credits include The Matrix Revolution, Superman Returns, and Iron Man. Nice to have you back. It's great to be back, Skid. I'm, I'm excited for the show. Also returning to the show is Chris Batty. Chris, your credits include A Wrinkle in Time, Creed II, and Aquaman. And you're also a member of the Visual Effects Society, also known as VES, which is the visual effects equivalent of SAG or the DGA. Nice to see you again. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we get into it, listeners, if you'd like to see what I'm talking about in terms of credits, look these guys up on the Internet Movie Database. Below the Line also has a page, and if you start there, you can simply click on the names of my guests. All right, let's get into it. The five films nominated for visual effects are All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Batman, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and finally, Top Gun Maverick. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. One quick note, we do like to recognize our below-the-line compatriots by name, even if it means I'm occasionally mispronouncing some of them, so apologies in advance. First up, All Quiet on the Western Front, and the nominated members of the visual effects team are Frank Petzold, Victor Mueller, Marcus Frank, and Camille Jafar. Gentlemen, talk to me about All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, this is a, a phenomenal movie. If just You should watch it just for the sake of the fact that it's a great depiction of a, of, a, of a fantastic literary work. I think I read All Quiet on the Western Front in high school, and we saw a film version of that you know, back then, but this one is absolutely phenomenal. And on almost every level of filmmaking, the acting, the cinematography is stunning. And I think this is thematically every year there's some new things that come out or something that happens in the industry, and there's a lot of collaboration this year that I think is pretty phenomenal. And this is a great example of that invisible visual effect and where you don't realize it's happening, they built these giant sets, I think in Prague, and they shot on these sets, but they did a lot of augmentation. And in order to do great augmentation, you have to have all the departments working together. And this film is no, is a great example of that because the visual effects in it are very, are very much secondary to the story. And when they even set out to make it, the filmmakers talked about how they didn't want it to be – even though it's a war film, all about the spectacle. It actually, the spectacle supports the very personal storytelling that's happening in there. And a lot of the visual effects are atmospherics, like adding layers of depth and layers of smoke and debris and just enhancing what's already there or extending the set beyond what's already been created practically. Yeah, that's right, Kent. I mean, it's a gorgeous film. I just fully enjoyed watching this one. Uh, I watched it recently. And uh, Kent's right. I mean, this is what we call supporting visual effects in the VES, where it's, you know, it's not the main thing. It's not Avatar. I can't immediately tell what's real and what's not. You know, some of the tanks are real. Some of them weren't in, in this film. They, they built a huge set. You can see, uh, finally answers that question that, yes, French trenches are much nicer than German trenches. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? The wine, but... <laughs> 
I think they're nominated for production design as well. And so, yeah, we'll get yes. into that when, we, when that episode rolls around. So you can talk more about that later. But that's the thing. And they it's a great integration film of, for visual effects yeah. where a lot of the visual effects were kind of like already uh, practical elements that were layered in on top of one on each other. Yeah. And so, in fact, when they got this huge set that they built, all the trenches and the, and the battle zone, uh, the visual effects supervisor asked for his own set that was like a green screen stage outside. So it would be the same environment and everything. So they could sort of film these elements of the smoke, the debris, but also soldiers. So they would have marching soldiers that they could just place in the background and add to the scope and the epicness of this film. I think they had like two treadmills that they painted green and they had six red cameras that they shot at various different speeds. And at various different angles, so, so that they would have these elements that normally would be produced in CG. Like you could grab mocap, motion capture data. Actually, nowadays it's readily available. Doing various, you know, walking, marching, running, fighting, and instead of using motion capture data, they actually caught, you know, captured their own footage on green screen that they reused over and over again, and in different ways in the composites. And it's very much a photographic show, a photographic intensive show than it is a CG show. And they really believed in that way more than maybe other shows may have up until now. And I think it, I think it really does come out in the wash here. Like it really does. It's something that you can see in the shots themselves. I mean, Chris, that was interesting that you were mentioning the different categories of supporting visual effects at the VES awards. This is a perfect example of that, where when you watch it, you're aware as an intellectually that, oh, they must have been visual effects in this film. But when you're you're not quite sure exactly where it's showing up, like you imagine their set extensions, you don't think they had, you know, lots of tanks, practical tanks ready. So they must have shot some miniatures, but you just don't really know. And I think this is a great example of that, where the uh, VFX supervisor, uh, Frank Petzold, talked about how he wanted to pay homage to the literary work. And that was important to him as the VFX supervisor. And that restraint on the CG side was super important. The only thing that he really mentioned in terms of like sort of traditional views of visual effects is he wanted the first time you see the tank coming out of the mist. He treated that like a character, like it's a monster or a creature. And he talks, you know, about how it breaks through the fog and how it's revealed. And I think that's a very interesting visual effects oriented way of looking at an event. But I think it pays off. And I don't mean that as a pejorative term. I think they, they did a great job of using that to sort of motivate the animator to find a way to make the, the tank compelling you know, in its layout and how it animated. And I think it shows up really in this movie. The uh, the, the director, Edward Berger, had worked with this VFX supervisor, Frank Petzold, on uh, the AMC series, The Terror. And so they already had a previous working relationship. It's another sort of invisible VFX or supporting VFX kind of show, right? And I, I was really impressed by this movie. It was really, there's the opening sequence. It's like a four minute scene with only two cuts. So while there may not be the spectacular giant VFX, a four minute sequence with two cuts is hard. It's like, that is a scene that you have to really pay attention to. I think, and when I say only, I only mean it in comparison to the avatars of the world. 500 VFX shots, I think in this movie, there's far fewer than a thousand in this, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a smaller scope, but it's just the craftsmanship and everything is so well done that it just shows right on screen. And so you're fully immersed in the experience of these soldiers and the horror of the war, which that's the whole point, right? 
you know, right. so you're not like pulled out by like, ooh, that's like a terrible looking tank or those, <laughs> those soldiers look pretty rubbery or whatever. No, they're like real people with real costumes. Or you have a virtual camera. That's a typical giveaway is like the camera is doing things that a real camera can't do. And in fact, they relied heavily on multiple passes of the same shot in order to get everything aligned. That's very old school VFX in terms of its approach. But the result is by far, it's, it's still stunning. And it still like it deserves the nomination. I think it's a it's a tour de force really of every sort of crafts department on display in a single film. Gentlemen, I agree that this is an amazing film, and I also really enjoyed it. But I do have a couple of questions. I don't want it to seem like nitpicking, but because I watched the film after the nominations had been announced, I did look at the visual effects specifically as it was going through. And one area that I thought maybe fell short, and again, I want your opinion on this, but there's a lot of flame in this movie. They have flamethrowers. And in fact, there's a key sequence where someone catches fire. And I just thought that maybe the flame was not at the level of visual effects that I expect from a movie in 2022. You know, it's funny. I didn't notice this. This is, this is amazing. This is what's interesting is I know you saw this recently. And so you, and as you said, you're looking, you're paying attention to it. When I was watching it, I didn't think about that. Like there's a part of you, a part of everyone that works in the film industry, that's the craftsperson that's like looking at the way the film is being made, the mechanics of it, and like each department. But then there's also a part of you that enjoys the filmmaking. And I just felt ensconced in the movie and watching the story happen. And so I did not notice that. But that is very interesting. Fire compositing is not easy. Yeah, it's it's a hard one. It's a hard one because one, the color, and two, the dynamic range of flame is all over the place. So when you're photographing it, if you use it as a photographic element, you've got to be able to pull a key on it. And oftentimes the compositing mode, I'm getting a technical speak, you're both adding, meaning that it's it's increasing the value or getting lighter, but you're also multiplying, meaning it's getting darker at the same time because there's darkness in the smoke and the flame. And it's hard unless you have the right compositing for it to feel like it's grounded in there. It's either one, usually it shades one way or the other. And the color correction is super challenging. And it's funny that that jumped out at you or interesting that it jumped out at you. It's also funny too, because there are a lot of the elements were practical. Like when there was one character that gets flamed. Yes, yeah. That happened. Like they did it with a stunt person. Oh, really? Doubly fascinating because if they're using <laughs> yeah. actual effects there, but it looks <laughs> yeah. fake to me, that's an interesting like how that sort of ties together. Like, I, again, I may have fake. missed it entirely on that. <laughs> I mean, that's happened to me before too, where you, you're driving home and you look up at the sky and you said, well, if I composited that, I'd get fired. <laughs> bad job on that one whatever whatever god or not god you believe in you gotta yeah. talk to that compositor up there in the sky <laughs> but yeah it's curious so it may be just an integration problem you know where it's a practical effect that they put in but maybe you know the, there's all kinds of compositing issues yeah when something doesn't look right especially in a film like this where they do so much practical stuff it's the integration like they may have shot real flames on a dummy or in place or in situ but the moving element the moving guy, the real person that maybe the actor who is not mm -hmm. on fire does not look like it's reacting or the flame doesn't look like it's reacting to that person. So then it becomes an animation issue, right? Because it's the way the fire interacts with the person that's moving. So it's uh, fire is not easy. Like, I think that's not an easy effect to get right, especially if it's on full display. That's a fascinating question. It didn't occur to me, honestly, when I watched it. That did not look real. I'll have to go back and watch it again, frame by frame. Yeah, certainly send me an update. We'll post that if you like figure. Like, and again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can yeah, be yeah, completely off base as well. My other concern about this film, as far as what it may be up against, as far as the voting goes, is do you think people will 
take their memories of 1917 from 2019 and say they did it better or worse. And I don't and whether that will hurt this film and sort of the evaluation of the work. I don't know if it'll hurt it saying like 1970 was amazing. That was another like Roger Deakins shot that one. Beautiful film. Very different kind of movie. I don't know if that will affect the Academy voters in saying that it wasn't as good or I don't I won't vote for it because of that. I think it's going to suffer or if it does suffer, it's up against films with like 2400 visual effects that are so obviously visual effects that it's really apples and oranges when you're comparing these these kinds of movies. Like it's hard to sit there and say, well, you know, did it serve the story? Yes. Were you thinking about it while you watched the movie? Probably not. And so it's all of these, unless you're, unless you're, unless you're you, skin, and you're like, whoa, the flame doesn't look right. But I mean, for the most part, people are watching it yeah. and not really thinking about those things. And so in that way, it, it's so challenging. And you never know how the Oscar voters are going to react because this is a, a an amazing film. So maybe the amazingness of the film will carry the vote. But I don't think the 1917 will affect it. I think it's more up against the competition this year is very hard. And I think that is what's going to affect it the most. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, it kind of brings up a whole other subject that we could get into is, you know, this notion of supporting visual effects versus the big in-your-face visual effects. You know, how do you judge that? They're totally different. Like the cool scenes in, in this movie of these battle scenes where it's all augmented and you don't know what's real and what's not. And it gets all integrated and then seamless versus Avatar, which is like all in your face visual effects. But it's so well done and gorgeous. But it's a tough one. You know, Chris, let's make that our segue into our second film, Avatar The Way of Water. You can go deeper on that. The nominated team is Joe Letary, Richard Bainham, Eric St. Don and Daniel Barrett. It's hard to even begin the discussion. You could spend five hours just talking about this film alone and the achievement in visual effects that this movie sort of embodies. It's hard to break down exactly what, you know, how we want to talk about this. Yeah. And if that's your interest, I'm sure James Cameron has probably recorded that and more. Oh, talking yeah. Talking about what's going <laughs> on behind the scenes. People can find that. But yeah, in general terms, what are you guys looking for when you see this? Let's start with just sort of where it compares to the predecessor, right? So let's just start there. I know for a fact that they've revamped their entire facial capture system. So Weta Digital made Lord of the Rings, Planet of the Apes, and Alita Battle Angel. And for those movies, they used their fax, they call it F-A-C-S system, the facial action coding system, to capture the performer, the actor's face, and their facial animation and put that onto a digital character. And for Avatar, they knew they wanted to revamp it. And they remade that entire system. And so even that alone is a huge achievement because it probably was the standard bearer during that time. And they decided because they were going to make two more movies that they could invest in that. That is the advantage of working for James Cameron on these movies is you know the technology is going to be used across you know seven years. So the investment is going to pay off over that time. Whereas most of these features we're about to talk about, you're on it for a year. You know, and then it's done. Whatever innovation you have is, you know, scrapped or you can't make long lasting tool development or it's very difficult to in that time. Whereas the advantage of Weta is they're going to amortize that cost over across several features, especially with the franchise. Right. And so you've got that. You've got their underwater motion capture, which they didn't have the last film. And it is amazing. You see it in the shots. Like you can see it in the animation of the characters in the shots. They actually came up with another system for doing 
eye lines in order to get mm-hmm. when you shoot a practical a real person like there's humans in this movie besides the blue people that were the, the avatar to the Nintarian people and the sea people those humans have to interact and look at these six foot seven foot eight foot tall characters and where they look is super important because you can't or you can, but it's always it's it gives itself away. And they used the spider cam system, and they mounted a monitor on it with the face of the actor that the human is interacting with, so they know where they can move it around in space, and they can record the, the human actor looking at them. Like that's another innovation they didn't have on the last film. So like, there's already two big ones we listed there, and then they have this when you compare when you actually look at this with. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, there's this technology they're developing, this sort of deep compositing system where they do depth mapping so that the composite, I mean, the layering of the elements can be in true 3D space. And they obviously used it on this one as well. That's another huge innovation that shows up really in the water stuff probably the most, but overall in the whole film, the layering of elements is huge. It's just like, it's mind blowing to me. Absolutely crazy how how good it is. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, we uh, we went to a, a seminar at DGA, and, and and James Cameron did a whole thing about the technology that he used on Avatar. And by the end, it almost became like a farce because he just kept mentioning things over, like more and more and more things that they developed, and the, like the motion capture. They improved the the normal motion capture for the bodies uh, on stage, but then they're like, oh, but we're shooting underwater. So they had to develop a brand new motion capture for that. But then he's like, well, I want shots that they go from underwater to above water. Okay, so we got to do both. And so (laughs) at the same time, (laughs) at the same time, so they're motion capturing. And then when the water comes over them, they have to be able to read all the markers. And, you know, when they're emerging from the water, so there's that. And I know on the VES, uh, the last category is called the Emerging Technology Award. Avatar's got three nominations by itself. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, that's, it's just like, it's pushing, it's pushing filmmaking forward in this technology sense. So I know there's always a danger with these types of films where process sort of overrides the product, but, you know, since we're a process category, <laughs> this is, this is one to put all the law, you know, all the awards on. I think along those levels, you could, you know, argue or not argue about the value of the film versus the filmmaking, the story versus the visual storytelling of that story are two separate things. And I, and I think that's ultimately very debatable, you know, as far as the value of those things. But from a technical standpoint, the thing about James Cameron is that he's always pushing the envelope. We haven't even gotten to the fact that he shot this in variable frame rates, meaning that like some of it, it's at high frame rate, HFR, which is very controversial in a lot of ways, like when you watch an HFR movie, it feels like that smooth motion on, on your HD, super HD TV, which is kind of video-esque. And they shot parts of it with the HFR, meaning it's like at 48, I think, F- FPS or maybe even higher. And some back at regular 24 FPS, which feels more filmic, meaning that there's more motion blur and it's not as smooth. And I saw a talk by James Cameron about that, where he said, and he sort of is in the James Cameron sort of way of, of talking, bashed how like we're moving from like 2k to 4k and the next frontier is 8k and at some point the image fidelity isn't going to be any better at 8k than it is at 4k and that what we need is temporal fidelity that's another james cameron term meaning the fidelity or the or the detail in time and that you can increase it and it's more more realistic i think we all noticed if you watch the hobbit movies 
and they saw him at HFR where it felt like you were watching like the BBC like reenactment of The Hobbit or like I felt like a soap opera. I'm sure people said that kind of thing. Yeah, it's totally the lighting. It's always the lighting. That but you can tell the prosthetics, the prosthetic all of a sudden mm-hmm. like, that doesn't look so great anymore, right? <laughs> that you have these moments, right? But in Avatar, since it's all CG, I noticed that at first it kind of was a little off-putting, especially when they were not flying around, but when they're just sort of talking. I think the flying was pretty spectacular at the high frame. But where it really shined for me was in underwater. Yeah. When it went underwater, I was absolutely 100% blown away like at how good it looked. It's almost like when they came out of water, they should have just kept that at – regular frame rate so that it felt like oh like a movie and then when you go underwater it's just like Jacques Cousteau d- documentary shot in, in you know super high def all like you're almost there like kind of thing like where you want to feel like you were there or the flying stuff I think is very similar to that to me at least it, it does something and it's probably shown in the most different formats of any movie we're about to talk about today or any movie they shot last year whatever you think of a James Cameron here's a guy who's really exploring filmmaking on a level that nobody else is doing and experimenting on a level that nobody else is doing in a major motion picture, you know, where he can tell the studio, I don't care what you think, I'm going to do it my way. Even though there's been missteps with HFR, I would argue that basically The Hobbit was panned for the HFR. I would argue that Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk, the Ang Lee movie, was panned for the HFR. And so was the, I forget the name of the film, but he did that one with Will Smith where he had a double of himself, the younger double. It was Gemini Man, where that was panned for the HFR. But here's a movie which I haven't seen the criticism of high frame rate in the reviews. So once again, it's another sort of category. 3D is the same thing. Like how many movies do you have to see in 3D? Like ask yourself that question. I didn't want to see Avatar unless I saw it in 3D. There are not many films I feel that way about where I'm willing to pay the premium of 3D to see it in that experience. And this is one of those films. And I think it earns that for me. It earns that right to say, I want to see it in, in that three, and I want to have an epic cinema experience I cannot have at home. And so I would say that that's a tip of the hat for me to James Cameron, regardless of whether you like the story or think it's nuanced or saying something you know like profound. I, I think there's something about that spectacle of filmmaking that is lost in a lot of movies now. There are very few films that beg to be seen, especially after the pandemic, that beg to be seen on the big screen. And it, for anyone who's a fan of the big screen experience, I think this is a film of, of that caliber, right? It's also very long. So that's the other thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. How can you make a movie that's three hours long? Like, oh, how many movies am I going to watch this year that are three hours long or close to three hours long? My goodness. I just think about how much rendering that is. <laughs> so much <Yeah>. rendering. <laughs> And it's also interesting. So it's high frame rate, which I was watching it and, you know, you notice the first few moments yes. that are like high frame rate and you're like, oh, but then once it gets underwater, you're like, wow, that's, that's what this is about. And it's supposed to help the stereo and the fidelity of the stereo. Yeah. yeah. To me, it's also like sociological, right? Where we're just programmed. You see the higher frame rate, just like TV, like old TV. And you would see that and you just looks cheap because that's what, how we grew up. And, you know, you saw the Doctor Who. Yeah, you saw BBC miniseries. Uh, yeah, Doctor Who. And you're like, that, that just looks cheap. But I think as time goes on, people will learn how to do it. It's just like digital cameras, right? Where at first cinematographers panned yeah, hated all it. these digital cameras because, well, they were terrible. But, <laughs> you know, when you watch All Quiet on the Western Front, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And it just, there's the nuance of light and they just, they know how to do it. So the technology caught up to the artistry and now the people who are doing the art know how to use that tool. 
And I think James Cameron is doing the same thing for a high frame rate. You know, it's just like, how do you use it to its full effect? Yeah. And, it's stere- and the stereo works because it is a CG movie. You can actually do real stereo as opposed to a lot of times when we see stereo movies, it's like this post effect where they take a flat one and kind of fake do it. And, you know, it's out there and three extra dollars for the theater and fantastic. But this is like an immersive experience. So go see it on IMAX. On a big screen. Yeah. This show also shows the benefit of like learning from the last one. Like when you have the time to do that, they had a lot of issues with the usable data off of the stage because they shot in different places. And Weta said, we need to figure this out. That's when they brought it all sort of in-house, so to speak. So it would be shot and the data would be using all the technology to get together integrated. And that was a big lesson for them. I think they probably knew it at the time they did the first one, but because of the money and sort of the politics of like who does what, I'm sure that affected it. And they sort of came back and said, no, 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 we have to be more integrated. They were able to test a lot of that technology on Alita Battle Angel. Like I think what you're seeing is Lightroom Entertainment being James Cameron's company driving the development of the technology in a way that others cannot because of the investment over time in these movies. And that's a huge advantage, no matter what. It's why a company like DreamWorks or Disney or Pixar, they invest in their technology over time, right? And so they can leverage that into more innovation for their respective, like they're an animation, but like the same thing here with Weta Digital. They know they're going to make a bunch of Avatar movies. And so they're investing in that technology and then they can test it using other movies. Like they're using it on Planet of the Apes. They're using it on Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And they can start leveraging that lesson into this picture too. And it doesn't mean that they're not doing a great job on those movies. It's just, they have a bigger plan and they can, along the way, like a great technologist in VFX knows how to think long-term and short-term. Like you think global, but act local. So like you can make those innovations per picture that go to a larger cause. And I think that's the one of the big advantages of Weta in the Avatar films. I think the quote from James Cameron said, well, hey, by the time we're done, we'll know how to make this movie. That is very <laughs> true of almost every movie, right? By, by the time, and, and Skid, you can talk about this too. I'm sure by the end of every movie you worked on, you're like, oh no, we're a well-oiled machine. Let's break it up and do it with somebody else. That's sort of the <laughs> exactly same thing right. in visual effects yeah. times, you know, times 20. Right. The last two weeks is always the most efficient. Right. Yeah. That's why you can pump out all these shots. Like you always hear these stories like, oh, with a month to go, they've got 2,000 shots to final. There's no way. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're going to totally do it. The machine itself ramps up and there's just a huge level of efficiency that's been gained over time. Like the first bit takes the longest and the last bit takes the least amount of time. It just sort of goes that way. There's a funny, actually, visual effects story in this. There is a shot that's been much debated on Reddit. One shot. In this movie that has been talked about, I just I was doing the research for the podcast and I came across <laughs> this and it was really funny. You've done it for all of us, Ken. Please share. Yes. So there's a shot in which Jake, as you know, the blue Nateri rides a sea beast, I think the Ilu, and he there's a saddle and he grabs the reins like a like a rodeo rider. And it's a close-up of his hand grabbing the reins. And on the internet, it's like a buzz. Like, it was that practical. It looks so good. It must have oh, been practical. Is yeah. it CG? Like, how I do they do that. it? The water looks amazing. And so the turns out. It's both. They shot in a kiddie pool, somebody with blue makeup, and they had a practical saddle, and they he grabs the, the the practical reins and grabs it, right? It's a close-up on us. And then they, they switched out the body for a CG body and put in a CG, you know, sea creature underneath the saddle and then augmented the water with more splashing. So it's both. Like, that's the answer to the to the internet buzz question. How do they do that shot? Seamless integration. <laughs> that's right. But old school. Yeah. Old school. I like it. 
that was a funny story that I came across. Whatever works, research. works. But that, it's an amazing film to see. It's it's definitely one that I think the spectacle is, and it's clearly a front runner for the award. And it's it's amazing. It's it's yeah. I, you know I can't say that word enough about watching the movie. Yeah, it's the one to to beat, really. Yeah, yeah, it for sure. You guys have made pretty clear sort of the dichotomy or the different ends of the spectrum where. All Quiet on the Western Front sits as far as supporting visual effects. And now Avatar Way of Water, very much about the visual effects and in your face. Talk to me about our third film, The Batman. The nominated team is Dan Lemon, Russell Earl, Anders Langlands, and Dominic Tui. Where does that fall on the spectrum? I mean, that's right in the middle. It's actually maybe more towards All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, it's a little bit more supporting, I would say. Yeah, right. And Dan Reeves, the director, he's a he's a, an experienced visual effects director. Like his first film, Cloverfield, and then he did all of the Planet of the Apes movies. He's somebody who I really respect in terms of a director who knows how to work with visual effects. Right? He is somebody who understands like what a CG digital double is, how to get what he wants in camera, and how he gets it in CG and the composite. The body of work for him is quite impressive for a director. You know, he's a young guy, and like I'm, I'm impressed by what he does and this film is no exception and this is a great example another great example of the integration of departments the cinematography is a standout in the batman to me like it is a beautiful beautiful film greg fraser who is the dp a legendary dp he shot an amazing film and he was also the one pushing the use of the volume the yeah. volume being oh, yeah. the mandalorian ilm stagecraft led screen he as a, a cinematographer was like, we should use this in the Batman. And they got ILM to make a basically a quote pop-up LED screen in London to shoot this. So they shot a lot of the cityscape of mm -hmm. Gotham as LED epic game, you know, uh, epic Unreal game engine backgrounds that are projected on these screens and they can move it around in real time to any new camera setup. But it required the discipline of the art department to provide that way beforehand and the visual effects team to build all the buildings and to light, create the lighting setups beforehand. So you're talking about at least three months before they step on a stage of intensive VFX work by you know, 20, 30 artists, which requires the art department to be that far ahead as well. So this is like the progressive filmmaking that I'm talking about with Matt Reeves. It requires you to have progressive department heads that like are willing to do something different in order to produce this film. And the results are on the screen. Like they're very much present. And along the lines of what Chris was saying about digital filmmaking, here's an example where probably the, you know, the most talked about visual effects sequence is the big car chase, right? The Batmobile car chase was great, right? In that scene, the DP, uh, uh, Greg Fraser, he took silicone caulking and he literally stuck silicone with a caulking gun onto plastic filters that he put on the lens of the camera so that the refraction caustics would look different. And like he had a set of them that, that he put aside and that they would put onto the camera, which when they shot this on a abandoned airport like runway, there was no rain. And so he used that to simulate rain on the lens. And then the visual effects team had to match it when they actually produced the CG in which they augmented every shot or redid every shot in that chase at Weta, another company we just talked about at Avatar, they basically went through and had to add rain and then even change some of the shots in order for it to read more clearly the action that was happening in that chase scene 
which I thought was amazing when I read about this. So you're introduced, you have the DP introducing artificial imperfection to the camera, to a digital camera, and then the CG VFX team trying to recreate that on their end to match it, which is kind of interesting and interesting, like chasing imperfection story, right? Of this movie. Trying to make it real, right? Trying to make Gotham a character, trying to make the look more real, you know, because you had the Nolan Batman and that was sort of grounded in a certain reality. And so is this one as well. You know, it's, it's a little bit different than the other superhero movies. Yeah. That's just Greg Frazier trying to introduce a bit of organicness to the look, right? With the anamorphic lenses that kind of squeeze everything and shallower depth. I mean, super shallow depth of field is crazy shallow. Things fall out of focus and it all has to do with the mood and the storytelling, right? Where everything's not quite clear, right? It's a mystery. Yeah. You know, you do have the visual effects team trying to chase that organic, you know, imperfections all around, right? And that that's the challenge. And that's hard. That's really hard. I think it's very hard. I think that, like, if you think about what CG is, it's the same as digital film. Like, you, you're chasing perfection almost always. So introducing something imperfect is actually much more difficult than, like, in a vacuum, the building would collapse like this. The smoke would move like this. When you're introducing more and more things that can inhibit it or change it or the way the light refracts on glass is different than what's calculated on the computer, it's much more challenging. And it adds more computation also and more time in between what you think it's going to look like and what you see it's going to look like. So it just adds layers of complexity to the, the solve, so to speak, yeah. of what you're trying to do. And on the practical side, they had four Batmobiles. Like that's just cool in itself. Like I just like <laughs> you know, all these movies have a, a practical element of it, but like four Batmobiles to do various things. And apparently one could do front wheel drive and back wheel drive and switch on the fly to like sending power to one tire versus the other. Like that's the kind of like engineering that's, I find amazing. It can, it can do a, a 12 foot high jump through flames. And a, like, it's that kind of stunt work requires this engineering, so to speak of like a car. And I would never guess it, but that apparently the Batmobile is as wide as a Hummer. Like I didn't know that. that. That's a big car. Yeah, they had it. They have it on the Warner Brothers lot, actually. And oh, do they really? It, so you see it? A, yeah, it's a big car. I'd like to go back to the, the LED stage because the one thing I'd like to say about this movie is that this is the way you use the LED stage. Like I think they did it to its like optimal use right now. Is it's basically, you know, normally you would do the green screen and you would put the stuff in the background and later but this is just doing it up front so you can have it in the lens and the biggest payoff is the bounced light so they have that whole stage set in that sort of construction zone where they kind of do all their surreptitious meetings you know it's either that Catwoman and Batman meet Catwoman and Batman or or, or the commissioner yeah commissioner Gordon yeah and and they're always in there and so they go back. So they make good use of the set. It doesn't feel overused. It's like, no. like that's that's just where you meet Batman. And so <laughs> they have a foreground set. They're shooting through that foreground set. And then the LEDs are the background, right? It's the city beyond. So the background is away. So a lot of times it's out of focus, but you're gaining all that real bounce on, you know, Batman's costume, which is reflective. Catwoman's costume is reflective. So you don't have to like Remove all the green. Oh man, could all the spill? Could you imagine removing? No, the you're just spill? gaining oh all gosh. that beautiful warm light that's coming off because those plates that they produce are gorgeous. So you're just gaining it all for free, right? I don't think it's free. I think well, on the, the day, that's what they call it. On the day, right? Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's just, it's just there, right? You know, three months of work ahead of time, but 
the other thing about that is, and Skid, you can speak to this, like chasing light. Yes. Like if you think about how many times have you been on set, Skid, and you're like, okay, we've got an hour to get this. And everyone's trying to set up all their stuff. And the next, you know, you got 30 minutes to get it. And you got 15 minutes to get it. And you got one take to get it. Imagine having a whole day because that light stays the same. Like you get the golden hour just right. And it's golden hour day of shooting, <laughs> you know, and I think that's a huge advantage for the actors and all the other craftspeople on stage who are trying to do their job and trying to set it all up and get everything perfect. And I think it really does show. Um, I did find out, though, that there were some limitations to the LED screen. Mm -hmm. And that is. So in real life, when you're shooting photographically, there's a high dynamic range, meaning that the the value from like highest high clipping white to the darkest black is great, that you have a lot of room that you can push the color correction on. But when you use the LED screen, it limits the high the dynamic range. So you don't have as much range to do post-color correction. That's one. And that it clips the blacks faster. Mm -hmm. So if you're already at black, you can't go any further. There's not gonna, you're not going to find any color in the black range. So that's a limitation about the LED screen. So you better have it close. You can't go out and fix that as much in post. Also, I just watched Babylon. And it was interesting, and I draw this analogy, how difficult a technology it was to introduce sound into a movie and like how it affected shooting. Well, the LED stage, the actual LEDs are solid, so they bounce sound back at the actors and back at the camera and the sound equipment. So it introduces acoustical problems as well. So it requires some other engineering when it comes to the sound. So that technology, just like sound at all the talkies in movies, introduced different problems. There are new problems that are being introduced. I'm not saying they're not, you can't overcome them, but it was interesting to read that there were limitations to what they could do because of the LED wall, which I thought was fascinating. Also, let's say you don't like something in the set. Like it's not easy to change the set. Oh, yeah, like, no. It's there. It's just like in the day, if you don't like that building in the far distance, if you, once you start picking out a little part of the building, then, then you've lost the advantage uh, somewhat because you have to go back in and post and fix that thing. You don't have a green screen now to roto them out. They're there in the plates, just like you shot it practically. So the plate's the plate. And if you want to change it, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And the other thing I, I read was that the, the strobing, like if something moves very quickly against the screen, it tends to strobe, which you don't get. And most of it affects motion blur as well. So those are artifacts caused by the LED screen that had you not used it, you wouldn't have. Yeah. I mean, they obviously, I mean, they, I think the fact that Greg Fraser, the DP, pushed for it and has used it so much, he's an expert in it and knows these things. Those were mainly expositional scenes too. And they used it a little bit here and there, but mostly it was like background, far away. They're just standing there, you know, and the background's not moving either. It's just a cityscape. Right. It's a really nice, uh, what they call translite backdrop, but, you know, it's just a lot more dynamic. I was familiar with the LED screens that they've been using on Mandalorian and some of the other Star Wars shows. If people are not familiar, you should go look it up. It's quite interesting where they are playing video while the actors are in front. I was not aware they had used that on the Batman. Do you think that's to the credit of the visual effects department that it was so integrated? Would you have known in watching it that this was used? Mm, no, because you would assume... I mean, you see some of those shots and obviously, you know, you don't have Robert Pattinson up in a skyscraper construction zone. <laughs> Just don't I mean, do it could that. be, you know, you could have a lot, a lot of ropes or something like that, you know, a lot yeah, of safety, yeah, but, safety gear, a lot of safety. Harness. So normally you would do that as a, like, I don't know, some sort of fakery, right? It was green screen or, or miniatures or painted backdrop or yeah. Yeah. That's the whole advantage of, again, the seamless sort of supporting visual effect, right? Where if you don't notice it, it's successful. Right. You can't help but think about it when you watch Avatar, 
But if you watch All Quiet on the Western Front or you watch the Batman, there are several like even the the car chase. You're like, oh, they shot all that. You know, like yeah, yeah they could have augmented. You think maybe they augmented something, but the fact that almost every shot was augmented or that redone in CG and we can't yeah. tell, that's amazing. I'm going to take us to the fourth film on our list, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. The nominated team is Jeffrey Bauman, Craig Hammack, R. Christopher White, and Dan Sudik. Now, this is also a superhero movie, but I think from a visual effects perspective, it's a much different approach than what we just talked about with the Batman. Right. Yeah, this one is a, a typical Marvel. It's like Marvel has almost a house look or a house style to their visual effects. They've been nominated almost every year that they've had a studio. Actually, they have been. Every year they've had a movie that's been in the uh, – but they have yet to win an Oscar. And there's some talk of bias or problems with it. or And one could argue that's there or not. But they do have a style. For better or for worse, this embodies that style. They also have a style of making their movies of how they find their third act and their battles that relies heavily on pre-viz, post-viz and their visual effects storytelling team to come up with it. It's gone under, actually, more recently than not, the last year there have been a lot of unfavorable articles online about Marvel and specifically this approach. Now, I'm not weighing in on whether they're true or not, they're, I mean, or like the validity of that, but that has been hotly debated in recent times in terms of like, does this method yield the result they want? And perhaps, you know, it doesn't. And in fact, I read one interview with the with the VFX team, which I found surprising, in which they sort of admitted that they felt that because of this process, the VFX in like the third act final battle sometimes don't come out as well as they would hope it to. And I thought that was surprising and a, a surprising admission from this team. I mean, I appreciate the honesty about that. Like that's, you know, and anytime someone's honest about their filmmaking and what they like and what they don't like, I, I think it makes it much more accessible and understandable for everybody. We all have a job, but we work on movies that work in the industry and we try to do our best. And sometimes it doesn't come out as well as we'd like for various reasons. And they cited this sort of finding the battle in the last act as something that happens to them, at least side of this film. And I was surprised to see that. That was interesting to sort of read about it. Whether or not we agree or not, the visual effects are outstanding. They deserve to be nominated. But in this film, the visual effect that stands out for me is all the underwater stuff. And it's interesting in comparison to Avatar because Avatar underwater is so clear. It is unbelievably like crystal clear. Whereas in Wakanda Forever, it feels more like realistic ocean water. I think it has to because of the fact it takes place on Earth and in the ocean. And this is sort of Namor, Namor. I always thought it was Namor, but in the movies, Namor. They, <laughs> they sort of switched all around. But Namor's world is amazing for me to watch. And I think the term is turbidity, the, the clarity of the water mm-hmm. and how much it falls off to like murkiness. And I think that commitment is actually something to be applauded because it makes it look real. To me, when I watched it, I said, wow, they really did a great job of making the underwater stuff look real. And actually, we can talk about this in comparison to a movie you worked on, Chris, Aquaman. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's like different methodologies, right? So right, right. on Wakanda, they, they did a lot of like, kind of like Avatar, like wet for wet, they say. So you're actually shooting underwater. But then there's right. also dry for wet, right? Where you're you're shooting on a blue screen stage and people are just pantomiming that they're underwater. And they used a good bit of both on this one. And sometimes they would shoot scenes underwater and then redo it on the stage. But that way the actor can remember, this is how I moved. You know, and I, I totally get that for storytelling purposes because sometimes you need to be in a close-up 
um, and really get that performance. But if you're underwater and under stress and about to, you know, lose all your oxygen, may not that's be, not stressful at all. No, that's, that's, yeah. that's easy. May not be remembering all of your life. No, I'm sure they're amazing. But um, you know, there's just some practicality of filmmaking that on a stage obviously is much easier than underwater. So they they use both with good effect, and yeah. yeah, it's a lot of a lot of water this this year. Also in the Bake Off was the Thirteen Lives, another mo- underwater oh, right. movie yep. that was in the Bake Off. Uh, didn't make the final list, but featured many v- VFX shots where they were in this murky water. Similarly, murky water, even more murky than this. But I thought they did a great job with that. Like, and not only that, this was another film. This is right, right after ba- that we talked about the Batman and what what Greg Fraser did on this one. Autumn uh, Durald. Uh, I don't want to uh, Arkapa, I think that's how you say your name. Uh, was a DP, and she had a special set of lenses made for her that were quote detuned, where they introduced imperfections into the lenses in the same way that Fraser did with with silicone caulking, mm-hmm. where like there's more chromatic aberration and there's maybe more of a less focus on the exterior of the lens, you know, of the field of view, which is funny as somebody who like is interested in cameras and reads reviews of lenses all the time about how they're rated on how clear they are on the edges. And they purposely wanted less focus on the edge of the camera lens. As a result of these lenses, like the VFX team had to come up with all these charts. They knew if they got the lens distortion correct. Could you imagine like, this is again, another example of like, you're chasing this imperfection. Like it's really hard for VFX. They have to come up with a special lens recipe. And apparently Weta Digital, Again, a company we've talked about several times already came up with this lens package that it would send to all the vendors for these, you know, all these shots underwater that were happening. And not only was it underwater, but all the rest of the effects they used them on all those shots. It was crazy. Like to to think about like that level of you know handshake between DP and VFX, which is what should happen. It should be mm-hmm. a, a case of like people working together to get a solution. Yeah, if your job is to help fill out the cinematography, then you should definitely partner with your camera cohorts. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting now that uh, Greg Frazier had his anamorphic lenses detuned for the Batman as well. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, you know, I mean, normally in visual effects, you want the cleanest, most pristine image. And then if you want to mess it up, you do it after the fact. So that the base plate isn't super clean and then the visual effects will be super clean and then you can add all the imperfections on. But again, that's all just very just digital and mimicking. But if you kind of start from a place of realism, it is kind of handy to know where you need to go. And so I think that holds true to almost all visual effects. So kudos to James Cameron and Avatar because I've never seen a real plate of Pandora. So he had no idea where he was going and they, they did a <laughs> magnificent job. But, you know, on the flip side of the supporting visual effects of, you know, like these guys with the Batman or, or All Quiet, if most of your plate is practical and you need to augment, that is somewhat helpful to the visual effects team. Oh, yeah. I, and I think that was a rule for these, for everyone on Black Panther was, especially the underwater, always have something real in the plate. Mm-hmm. So that way you could have something you can refer to and say, hey, that's grounded. Even like when they were shooting underwater, there were certain costume elements that couldn't go underwater, obviously, because it's underwater, they can't hold up. And they would make like a thing that would cast a shadow across their faces so that they could at least get the shadow. So that was in camera, but they would replace the headdress, let's say, with with the CG version of that. So there was a lot of discussion and thought based on that. They shot some one-third miniatures as well. When they shot the dry for wet, it was like 48 frames a second. So they simulated slower movement in water than they would get on land. So there was all of that. 
And this whole, I got to say, with the exception of Avatar, which is its own groundbreaking thing, this year seems to have a lot of, of shows moving toward like being able to get more on the day of the shoot. In the last 20 years, there's been a shift, probably 10 to 20 years, between, oh, we'll fix it, we can do anything in CG, to, hey, let's get more in camera. Let's get more that's right in camera. But that requires the productions to shift, right? I think there was a little bit of a movement, a moment in time, and it's I think it's past. It's at least according to these movies, it's his past, where it's like, oh, yeah, don't worry. We'll just figure it out later. We'll just put up a big green screen. We'll just figure it out later. And I think the less of that's good. I think putting the onus back on the filmmakers, putting the onus of collaboration back on people who are on stage working together is the magic of filmmaking. And when you get away from that magic, the forced collaboration and the pressure of the day, I think that you get away from some of that, what makes a movie good. I, I actually think there's something that happens in that process. I'm not saying that you should be, we should be going crazy and everyone's yelling at each other about making the day, but talking to each other, trying to achieve what's best for the movie together, there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, there's everything right with that way of thinking. And I find myself, even in the world of animation, which is all CG, talking about the collaboration. That's the thing that makes a movie great. You know, when you can bring the departments together because digital media makes cameras do a certain thing that makes that forces the DP and the VFX to work or the art department has to consider sets earlier because they show up in this visual effect. That's great. I think that makes people closer and I think it makes a more cohesive movie. I think Black Panther has elements of that as well. Yeah. And, you know, you have to commend them to just sort of committing to the, the, the whole underwater thing. You know, because sort of working several months on Aquaman and sort of dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of things that we were trying to achieve with the set stuff and almost solely on set to have those elements actually in water. You know, it just shows on screen if you side by side them, you just believe it. And even if you're intermingling things that were shot underwater for real and things that were shot on stage, you at least have something to go off of and, yeah. and it grounds the whole story it allows your characters to be real characters. And, you know, these people actually lived underwater, and but they never went underwater. You could <laughs> feel that in the film, but obviously Wakanda did it very, very successfully. I thought they did an exceptional job. I was really blown away by the water stuff. I just thought it was really well done and interesting. Again, a different take than Avatar, but both exceptional. You know, there's a larger theme here about collaboration. But before we revisit that, I want to also bring in the fifth film on our list. That's Top Gun Maverick. And the visual effects nominees are Ryan Tudhope, Seth Hill, Brian Litson, and Scott R. Fisher. And it seems to me that a lot of the press around this film has very <laughs> heavily emphasized how practical yes. they did with the flying and the shooting session. So I was surprised to see it on the visual effects list because it didn't seem that the movie strategy was pushing the visual effects side, or if anything, was minimizing that in favor of this discussion of practical effects. Chris, oh, why, why don't you start this one off? I think you have some thoughts on this. I don't know. Full disclosure, we both work for Paramount. so <laughs> This one rides a, a tough line because they did an exceptional amount of real aerial photography. You know, Tom Cruise and the rest of the actors were really in jets flying. But the problem is there's some practicalities to that that you just can't always put up on screen. So some shots were augmented. You know, you have to get the enemy jet, and the, you know, and sometimes like F-14s, for example, there are no more F-14s. They were decommissioned, you know, like 15 years ago. I'm so, sure Tom Cruise could get them to recommission a few for his movie. He's really, really. This is the one really thing I was actually shocked about. So they didn't shoot in an F-14. 
So they didn't have that. So they, they used another plane and then went back later. So Tom Cruise is actually in that cockpit. It's just not the right cockpit. <laughs> and so they had to develop all these cool tools with like taking them out of the frame, putting the correct jet. And especially if you're an interior shot, all the canopy around you. And then that glass, they like did tons of research on the cockpit glass and the micro scratches on the glass so that when the camera and the <laughs> planes moving around, like all the right glints. So they did an exceptional amount of work. And then the, all those planes have to hold up to an amazing amount of detail. Cause you got to remember this is also an IMAX film. Cause this is the film that sort of announced we're back, you know, go back to the theater. And they held this, to their credit, Paramount and, and Tom Cruise held this movie back. The much-beloved Jim Giannopoulos. So, like, we can talk just a little bit about studio politics. He was brought into Paramount to turn it around several years ago and did so. It was not doing well. He turns the movie studio around, and then COVID hits, and he stuck to his guns with Tom Cruise not to release it on streaming. And eventually was let go in favor of someone who was more pro-streaming, a little bit more progressive. Uh, Brian Robbins is now the head of Paramount, but Jim Giannopoulos, uh, yeah, that was this was his pick, and Tom Cruise, of course, uh, to sort of stay in the theater and keep a theatrical experience. And to his credit, it came out as a giant blockbuster, second only last year to Avatar, really. And I think that's part of the reason, Chris, that they sort of kept pushing this whole like real jets, no CG or little CG or downplaying it. It wasn't until it was in the shortlist for the Bake Off did. Were they allowed? There was an embargo on the VFX team. They could not talk about it. So, Skid, you're 100% right. Like, you didn't hear anything about it because they weren't allowed to talk about it. And this is almost old school Hollywood, right? When you think about this, like, of creating a narrative around a film that isn't actually 100% true. There are actually 2,400 visual effects shots in the movie. Like, there's 2,350 in like Black Panther. There's just as many VFX shots in Top Gun as there are in our big VFX, but you wouldn't think so. And so this is a place where you could make the argument, maybe this one could win best visual effects. You could make that argument that nobody thinks there's visual effects in this movie until they see it's up for the award, and then it's there. I mean, certainly, if you really think about it, we, we didn't get a hold of a stealth plane, the Dark Star. Yeah. Like, that is a made-up plane that doesn't exist, and we didn't shoot it flying around like and hitting Mach 10.4 and exploding in the sky. They did not completely destroy some foreign Air Force base either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That did not happen. They didn't fly an F-18 underneath a bridge. So they did have quite a bit of visual effects in there, no matter what anyone thinks. It's a little bit sad to me that they don't get the recognition. Some of it's kind of in your face, like the whole in-battle thing and blowing up the base and all that stuff. That's kind of like, oh, well, that's obvious. But like the rest of it goes into the supporting category because, you know, those guys were, they did a lot of flying for real. And so all those performances of the actors, and that's why, right? Because yeah. they're really in the cockpit and they're really getting thrown around and they're really feeling the G-force. You can use all that and then make everything around them tell the story that it needs to tell. Like, it's not a knock against the practical stuff at all. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, the acting is amazing in those co those cockpit scenes. The photography, Claudio Miranda, Oscar winner for Life of Pi, helped to develop these special Sony cameras that could fit inside the cockpit and get those shots. That's an achievement unto itself to get those shots. Like, there's things in there you've never seen in a movie that are shot practically. Yeah, and, and then, again, with, the, like, the supporting thing is because a lot of this – 
the visual effects are the way they put the practical effects together. So they shot, I can't remember what it said, like over 800 hours of aerial photography of elements. And so sometimes it's a visual effects shot, but it's just really just putting a couple of things that they actually shot together in the same frames. So it's like compositing. The artistry is still all 100% valid. I don't think it takes away from the, the story that they're trying to tell that, you know, these guys were actually up there and because they were. One funny story of a visual effects story is that in the sailing scene where Jennifer Connelly takes the boat, the sailing boat to get repaired, apparently CG artists replaced Jennifer Connelly's pants because in the scene before she was wearing different pants in the bar. So for the continuity, nobody knows that now. Right? You only know it because I told you this. That's a visual effects yeah. shot. Her pants were replaced. I think the movie is, I actually love Top Gun. I just thought it was an amazing movie. It's a really fun film. It definitely delivers on its premise. And also begs to be seen big. There are two films that I really wanted to see on the big screen this year out of the list that we just mentioned, and it was Avatar and Top Gun. And that has the full, the sound, everything about it is is amazing. Tell me if there are any other films from last year that you thought were noteworthy for visual effects. Not on this list, but you think deserve a shout out. There was a small film that I really enjoyed called After Yang. It's a really great movie. And in it, it's a little bit in the future. And they have like the concept of clones and the concept of an android. And it's so intimate. There's at one point you go into somebody's memory. It's so beautiful and artful that I just was blown away by the way that sort of felt and looked and was depicted. And that's a visual effect. And there were interesting cinematography and editing choices where they would play a scene and do multiple takes of a line from different points of view. And I felt that was also very evocative of memory, of like thinking about something in terms of a memory. And I, for me, After Yang was a great movie that had a supporting visual effect in it that wasn't something that you really thought about, but just sort of took for granted. Almost in the way that I'm a big fan of the movie Gattaca, mm-hmm. that Gattaca felt like the future, but not, you know, in a way that like was not inaccessible. Chris, what about you? I think Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is oh, a very yeah. interesting one. It was basically done by like five dudes. <laughs> in the you know covid movie i know they had a lot of help at the end kind of get it into theaters but you know there's nothing all that particularly groundbreaking in it but it's just so well done just for it's just so fun and the yeah. and and the idea is great and the acting is great and it's just like a fun fantasy film i definitely had that and then the other one was the northman Robert Eggers, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit earlier this year, but it's also just another beautiful film and just like some weird stuff in there, man. There's there's some weird (laughs) stuff in that movie. And so, uh, but it's all just done to great effect. And, you know, if you like watching naked people fight in lava, this is the film for you. Whoa, whoa, who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Well, gentlemen, on that note, we're going to call it a wrap. I really appreciate your insights for these films. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Super fun. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line, one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. More Oscar goodness coming soon, so please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again for Below the Line.